Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. Uh, today, I'm delighted to have uh, Professor Matthew Rubery who is the Professor of Modern Literature at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, Matt is interested in modern literature, media, reading practices, and everything in between. Uh, His publications include The Novelty of Newspapers, Victorian Fiction After the Invention of the News, and The Untold Story of the Talking Book, which is about audiobooks, among many other publications. But today, we'll be talking about his latest publication, Reader's Block, A History of Reading Differences, uh, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. We'll get get to that in a second. But uh, first of all, Matt, uh, a very warm welcome to you on this podcast. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, Matt, why don't we start with you telling us a bit about yourself and your academic interests and how did you come to write this book? Sure. Uh, So as you mentioned, I teach in an English department at Queen Mary University of London. Um, And I started out a fairly conventional literary critic writing about Victorian novels. Um, But my interests have really sort of expanded since then, uh, particularly into the area of disability. Um, And I'm particularly interested in the relationship between reading and disability. And that started when I was working on a history of audiobooks um, and trying to figure out where recorded books first started and trace that history back to uh, the first recorded books made for disabled veterans of the First World War who came back from the war, had lost their sight and needed a way to be able to read by themselves. Um, And it was while working on that history of audiobooks that I started thinking about my new project, um, particularly because I kept coming up against debates over what counts as real reading. Um, So you probably know that audiobooks kind of have a uh, controversial reputation for some people. They're often seen as uh, sort of an an easy way to read or even a form of cheating. Um, So I'd often come across these accusations of audiobooks not being real reading. And it sort of got me thinking about you know, where that line is between what counts as real reading and not real reading. Um, because I just never had that same confidence as critics of audiobooks have 
that there is just a really firm line between what counts as reading and non-reading. Um, I've always thought those boundaries were very fuzzy and I was never really sure just w- where exactly they ended. So that started me thinking, even though I was working about record, uh, working on recorded books at the time, that got me thinking about you know, what, what are some other sort of edge cases that um, either don't count as real reading or are dismissed as non-reading. And it really just got me thinking about all the different ways in which we um, interact with books. So that brought up the idea of neurodiversity, which um, I think is a really busy, b- big idea now, uh, although it was less talked about when I started researching this topic. Um, but this idea of neuro- neurodiversity is just simply that there's a tremendous amount of variation in people's brains and that we should think about those cognitive differences um, or, or those cognitive variations as differences rather than as uh, as deficits or as pathologies. Um, and that sort of motivated me to then take all these edge cases that I'd found over the years, put them together into a history of uh, reading differences. Um, so the, the, the book I've written is basically a neurodivergent history of reading, bringing all these different edge cases together. Uh, and I, I deliberately use that phrase, reading differences, rather than reading disabilities, which might be more familiar to some of your uh, audience, um, because I want to move away from a framework that emphasizes deficits and difficulties over potential strengths. Um, it, it might be easiest for me to just give you uh, one of my favorite examples of neurodivergent reading. And that's a savant named Kim Peek. Um, Kim Peek could read two pages at the same time. He could read one page with his left eye, the other page with his right eye. It didn't matter whether those pages were sideways, upside down, or reflected in a mirror. Um, and no matter what way those pages were oriented, he, he was one of the world's fastest readers. He could um, read incredibly long six or 700 page novels in under 90 minutes. And he didn't just read them, he remembered them. I mean, it was really something closer to a scanner. So he could sort of uh, look at these two pages and file them away in his memory and remember them nearly verbatim years later. So Kim Peek's nickname was the computer for this reason. Um, so in some ways, you know, this is an example of incredible strengths and talents. Um, but at the same time, Kim Peek, he needed support uh, showering, dressing, and brushing his teeth every day. If he didn't have that, he wouldn't be able to read at all. <clears throat> I'm glad that you brought up Kim Peek. We'll come to him in a second. But just before that, um, I, I, what I really found interesting was the the concept of the unideal reader that you propose. Because you know, I remember reading uh, Harold Bloom and how to read and why, and it seemed that reading was this exalted activity which pretty much everybody does the same way and the only problem was that we were not doing it enough or we were not doing it at all and uh, just you know taking out books and reading it, reading them would would solve all of that uh, but what you very convincingly argue is how you know unnatural an activity reading is because i think you argue that we are not um, coded to read maybe coded to speak but not to read and it is in these unideal cases, in the cases of these unideal readers, that we find um, uh, this, th- these ca- these issues of neurodivergence that many readers kind of exhibit. So, if you could talk us through uh, who an unideal reader is and and what a reader's block is. Yeah, be- I like your example of Harold Bloom's exalted yeah. reading, um, and I, you know I want us to preserve that, but at the same time, it's just a very narrow range of all the different reading styles out there. And I kind of want to steer our attention towards some of those as well and bring them 
into the conversation. Um, so, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, it's important to state at the outset that there is nothing natural about reading. Um, it's very different from speech, which is something we are hardwired to do, whereas reading is something that uh, we have learned to do thanks to the brain's plasticity. Um, mm. It's an acquired skill um, through evolution over thousands of years. And that's one of the reasons I think it's such a complex activity. There's lots of variations to the way people do it, and there's no universal design for doing it. Um, I know most people don't think that much about uh, you know, what is happening when they're reading. It's just something, uh, an activity that most people do without thinking. Um, but once you start thinking about it and realize how com complicated it is and how many things can go wrong at every stage of the reading process, it's not surprising that some people struggle to learn to do it. I think what's surprising is that anyone can do it at all. Um, so to come back to the idea of the ideal reader. So this is a term used by literary theorists who uh, use the figure of the ideal reader as an idealized figure that's basically meant to represent everyone. Um, and it's importantly a disembodied figure. So it's not someone who's going to be affected by sociological factors like uh, class or gender or race. It's just sort of a disembodied mind engaging with the text. But a lot of historians of reading over the last uh, couple of decades have done really interesting work showing how sociological factors such as class, gender, race, nationality, things like that, you know, make a huge difference to the way people read. So I really admire a lot of that work. But even in that body of scholarship, those critics are still dealing with cultural differences rather than cognitive differences among readers. And a lot of their studies still assume that the act of reading um, is kind of happening identically in people's minds from one reader to the next. So I'd like to sort of push back on the idea by getting us to think about the unideal reader. So someone whose cognitive differences make it make reading difficult or in some cases impossible altogether. Um, so get us to think about all the variations uh, in the ways people read. Um, think about reading as a spectrum of activities that vary from one person to the next. And, you know, this might just be subtle differences. And I do really enjoy talking to people about the different mental imagery we have. I mean, some people seem to see nothing at all in their minds while they read, mm. while they're reading, whereas other people seem to have, you know, incredibly vivid films playing out in their mind. Mm. Um, whereas people who are affected by various cognitive conditions, something that will be well known like dyslexia or depression, mm. um, that can make a huge difference on the way people read. And I think bringing those um, conditions into conversations will actually just give us a much richer uh, understanding of what's happening when we're engaging with texts. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, very self-evident sort of act that we do that we are not even aware of is decode letters and symbols while reading. Uh, and and for dyslexic readers, that is precisely that becomes precisely one of the problems that they face, as you talk about in the book. And and by talking about dyslexic memoirs, you sort of uh, indicate that uh, you know decoding shapes and letters is a rather overlooked aspect of reading. So, uh, how what do the experiences of dyslexic readers tell us about the very act of reading? Um, so I, whenever I'm talking about dyslexia now, uh, a quote from the philosopher Gillian Rose comes to mind. And hmm. uh, she grew up, uh, despite being an extraordinary philosopher um, as an adult, uh, she really struggled with reading and her dyslexia when she was growing up. But she, she says, reading was never just reading. 
when you grow up with dyslexia. And I've always found that really useful. Um, and that definitely comes out in dyslexia memoirs, which, you know, it's just a curious genre in itself because most of these memoirs are written um, at a time when there's very little tolerance for uh, finding reading challenging. There's a huge stigma um, towards anyone who wasn't able to read. And, uh, you know, lots of people suffered tremendously during their school years, um, either being bullied or teased by their peers. Once it stood out that they struggled to read. Um, so it's an interesting memoir because you would think the last thing someone who grew up being bullied about um, finding reading difficult would want to do is to then go you know, write about the experience and deal with the very letters that caused them so much pain and anguish growing up. Um, but in a way that makes sense too, because they really want to uh, address this issue head on and kind of speak back to their critics through the very medium that they were accused of not being able to um, be competent at. Um, something that stands out to me in these memoirs though, is that they really spend a lot of time scrutinizing what happens during the reading process itself. Um, I mentioned a moment ago that, I mean, most people when they're reading, they don't really think too much about what's happening inside their brain. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of like when we drive a car, you know, you don't really need to know what's happening under the hood um, to, to, to be able to get from point A to point B. But it's a bit like that with reading. Um, if you're a neurotypical reader and reading kind of happens automatically and smoothly, uh, mm -hmm. if you're neurodivergent, you're probably intensely aware of what's happening or what's not happening. Um, while you're reading. So a lot of these memoirs do a fantastic job of uh, drawing attention to perceptual distortions that individual readers see. And this might be things like, uh, you know, the wrong letters, letters or words moving around on the page, mixed up sentences. Some uh, dyslexic uh, memoirs sort of talk about uh, words flying off the page. Uh, mm -hmm. One author who has a really great sense of humor describes the page looking like a bowl of alphabet soup. Hmm. Um, so I think what these memoirs do is they, they really get us to think about the crucial role played by decoding um, hmm. in the reading process. And by that, I just mean uh, the act of looking at graphic symbols on the page and converting them back into speech. Um, and that usually that coupled with comprehension, um, converting those symbols into meaning, those are kind of the big parts of reading. But people with dyslexia often get hung up on that decoding process. Um, and that to me is worth thinking about because a lot of activity happens before we get to the stage of interpretation. Literary critics tend to jump right to that stage of interpretation and start debating um, alternative ways of uh, thinking about the passage. But uh, I think dyslexic readers make us think about the fact that people aren't necessarily dealing with the identical passages in the first place. Um, and you know, often these memoirs bring this out in very um, painful, traumatized ways, but yeah. often with a sense of humor as well. And one of my favorite dyslexia memoirs is by a woman named Eileen Simpson. And she was writing decades ago, uh, but she was just a tremendous uh, stylish writer uh, of her own. She was married to a poet. I think she really yeah. thought a lot about the way she presented language as well as the challenges she had with it. Uh, she writes about reading the book, reading the novel Little Women. And Little Women is just one of those novels so many people I know just absolutely adore this novel. And, you know, a lot of people talk about how it changed their life and made them want to become readers or writers. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, Simpson, as a dyslexic reader, has a very different experience with that text. Mm -hmm. um, she found it confusing. She couldn't really tell the characters apart. She never knew who was speaking. They all seemed the same to her. She thought the book was way too long. Um, she ended up skipping almost everything in the narrative uh, while she was reading it, except for the dialogue bits. 
And that meant that she missed the novel's very famous death scene. So she couldn't even understand why everyone uh, got so worked up about this novel. But I like mm-hmm. that idea too, of thinking about um, the way her experience of dyslexia and her encounter at the decoding phase, you know, kind of what she came into contact with in the first place mm-hmm. affected her understanding of the novel. Um, and that really set her reading experience apart from neurotypical readers. Yeah. And I think uh, what you termed as the anti-bibliomemoir really kind of summed it up, this feeling of, you know, reading not really being as pleasurable for, as it is made out to be in the experiences of these people. Uh, but um, if you have uh, a dyslexia on, on like kind of a spectrum, uh, then on the kind of, I think, the opposite side, you have a very intense sort of engagement with decoding and reading, but not so much for comprehension, which you call as uh, hyperlexia. And this is the example of uh, what is called as hyperlexia. And this is the example of Kim Peek that you were citing earlier. Uh, so could you tell us a bit about what, what hyperlexia is and and um, how are hyperlexic or autistic readers or why are they so concerned with the surface of text? And would it be right to call their reading just superficial reading? Because that is what most of the times they're, they're you know, kind of uh, blamed for doing that what they're doing is really engaging with the surface of the texts, the letters, the symbols, but not really getting into the comprehension bit of it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm assuming your audience will know a bit about autism spectrum condition, uh, but just to make sure. So that's a, a yeah. group of neurodevelopmental differences that affect the way the brain process information and can sort of take lots of forms. Um, the one I'm obviously interested in most is uh, the way autism can affect um, aspects of behavior, including reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so hyperlexia is usually, not always, but usually associated with uh, people on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and the easiest way of thinking about it is just as a precocious ability to read at a very young age without necessarily understanding what's being read. So some children start reading you know, without any help. I and mean, most people find reading really difficult. It takes them a long time to learn. They need a lot of teaching and a lot of patience. And um, uh, th- that has to happen with outside help. Whereas a lot of people uh, with hyperlexia just learn to read on their own and often can't explain how, how they do it at these young ages. Um, some of these people, though, even though they could read, let's say, an entire book quite fluently or even memorize an entire book in some cases, um, don't necessarily know what any of those words mean, even though they can um, decode them properly. Um, So I think we can sort of take this over to the question you've raised about uh, different autistic styles of reading. And the one that sort of um, really captured my attention was um, thinking about uh, the, the ways that sort of just reading without the goal of interpretation being in mind, staying on the surface, it kind of challenges the way we usually think about reading as an interpretive activity. So I use the phrase surface reading. Um, hmm. And, and this, you know, this is a style of reading associated with autistic readers who are often preoccupied with aspects of books that tend not to get that much attention from other readers. Um, I'm thinking here of aspects of the book surfaces, like its cover, uh, its binding, the type of paper, the ink used, or typefaces. Um, to give you an example, I, I came across in one memoir uh, the case of a young woman 
who used to shiver with delight when she'd encounter a hyphen on a page. Hmm. Um, so moments like that just sort of uh, drew my attention to how some people have a very strong reaction that, you know, I'm guessing other neurotypical readers might like hyphens, but probably not have that strong a reaction to them. So just uh, examples like that made me think about hyphens in an entirely new light. Um, I would use that that phrase surface reading rather than superficial reading, though, only because superficial kind of has negative connotations as, um, you know, sort of uh, staying on the surface because you are, uh, you know, shallow or, or, or something like that. Uh, surface reading seems, um, if not necessarily a deliberate choice, uh, there are, uh, a deliberate strategy because a, a lot of autistic readers, you know, find some type of satisfaction, whether that's aesthetic, sat- aesthetic satisfaction or something else, um, in these features. So uh, I'm thinking of readers who trace their fingers across the page because they like that slightly raised texture of the ink on the page. You know, again, sort of a level of micro detail that might go unnoticed by other readers. But in some cases, these are sensory pleasures that I think everyone will um, find familiar, even if autistic readers take them to a different degree. So some of the sort of aspects uh, uh, of the surface of text that um, autistic readers have called to my attention is um, sort of fundamental questions like, should you pay attention to the white space or the black space on a page? Um, It never really occurred to me that some readers might sort of uh, zoom in on the space between letters rather than the letters themselves, for instance. Um, but autistic readers don't necessarily share the norms of other people and uh, you know, might find that uh, drawing their attention rather than um, paying attention to the letters themselves. Or conversely, they might um, zero in on the shapes of the letters and find that meaning. So rather than thinking of letters as just sort of building blocks to words that you can then decode, um, they would just start thinking about uh, these individual shapes um, or other, th- th- you know, other pleasures that come to mind is like, you know, lots of people read for many hours of the day. Some autistic readers read, you know, up to 12 hours a day. So wh- wh- where, where's that line between, uh, you know, uh, 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 reading too much or is there such a thing? So these things I hadn't really thought about are brought to my attention by this, this whole genre. Um, I think sort of the point that, that came out to me though, is that, um, for most readers, the medium of communication, the words on the page, they're meant to kind of disappear as you lose yourself in the story and the story all plays out in almost cinematic way in your mind. Whereas for autistic readers, that medium of communication doesn't necessarily disappear. Hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So would you say that this kind of intense attachment to uh, the letters, the symbols themselves, this aestheticization, if you will, of of the writing itself on the page, it kind of it kind of turn over um, turns much mainstream reading and even literary criticism on its head because there you have a very intense preoccupation with interpretation, interpretation or comprehension, but not so much with uh, actual words on the page, but the kind of experiences that these um, uh, hyperlexic or even autistic readers have kind of 
forces us to stop in our tracks and question what exactly are we doing when we read. Yeah, I, I like the way you've just put it. Um, it, it seems like lots of my neurotypical, you know, excellent, uh, 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 very skilled reading friends, uh, th- they do have their individual um, fixations. So I, I know lots of academics who really like to use particular fonts, like Garriman, for example, um, whereas others tend not to think about that uh, that factor much at all. Uh, so I, I think the difference is that they feel that they can kind of bracket those um, those details and in order to talk about reading in a very generic way, as if we all do it in the same way and we can talk about it in a universal way. Whereas I think a lot of autistic readers say, no, 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 um, I, I'm going to talk just about the font um, and not sort of shift to that common ground. Uh, so that is sometimes pathologized uh, and autistic readers are seen as not reading because they um, are thought to be incapable of having that sort of shared dialogue. But I think if we approach this from a different perspective about, you know, what exactly are they getting out of reading? Um, can we think about uh, how our ideas of reading can be made to accommodate those different styles? Um, what would that open up for us? Or what do their, um, their uh, autistic people's reading interests uh, help neurotypical readers to realize about their own um, reading habits. So I, I think it's really helpful to sort of view lots of different reading styles um, as provocations for self-reflection on one's own reading habits and also um, where our assumptions about what counts as reading and what doesn't count sort of come from. Hmm. And uh, one thing that can happen to neurotypical readers, a kind of lexia that you talk in the book is alexia. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, which uh, is the sudden loss of um, literacy, if you will. Uh, but you call it not illiteracy, but post-literacy in a, in a in a phase of being after uh, literate literacy. Uh, what is alexia, and uh, how do, how does it happen? And in the memoirs that we uh, that you discuss in the book, what are the experiences of these alexic readers and how do they learn to cope with this, this sudden, um, the sudden post-literacy environment that they are thrown into by, you know, um, an accident, uh, or, or something that they suffered a brain injury or something like that. Yeah. So, uh, I, I think it's a traumatic experience for a lot of people because, um, most people tend not to really think about the fact that, uh, literacy is something that can be lost. Uh, you know, most people think you acquire literacy in childhood and then you remain literate for the rest of your life. And uh, you know, for most people, that is the uh, the, the course of their lives. Um, but as, as you mentioned, alexia is a condition where you lose the ability to read as a result of stroke, illness, head injury, something like that. Um, historically, it was known as word blindness because um, these are people who can see the page. And, you know, they can see the letters on the page that they used to be able to read, but the letters just don't have meaning for them anymore. Um, so it's called word blindness because of that inability to recognize the, the, uh, the meaning of these words. Um, and sometimes the phrase acquired illiteracy is used. And I think that's more useful in terms of uh, thinking about this state as a reversion to um, uh, the state we're all born with of not being able to read. Um, I prefer the term post-literacy, though, because there's obviously a... a a massive difference um, between experiencing the condition of non-reading as someone who's never done it or someone who's done it. 
And, you know, it's particularly, or it's traumatic in, uh, uh, in its own way, not being able to read because, uh, or, or, or losing the ability to read because you're intensely aware of precisely what it is that you've lost. Um, and the sort of the drop in status, the stigma that you now have to put up with. A lot of people sort of cope with um, this condition by trying to pass as, um, as readers, pretending that people love it. Uh, and, you know, it's an invisible disability. So you can, you know, get away with that for, uh, uh, to a large extent. Um, but I think that sort of, that motivation taps into the feelings of shame that people are experiencing at, at no longer being able to read. So it's something that people find very different, uh, very difficult to cope with. Um, I, I, I like to say that, you know, the, the most effective way to find out what reading means to people is to watch what happens when that ability is taken away from them. Uh, so, you know, they t- it's usually something that's taken for granted, but suddenly people become profoundly aware of um, what reading means beyond just the physical ability of doing it. Um, the, the, the value that reading has in modern societies, people become intensely aware of that once they're no longer able to do it and start reflecting on things like, you know, how much of their identity is tied up with um, their ability to read. Um, one thing that comes out in these memoirs, so just like the dyslexia memoirs we talked about a moment ago, you know, make us aware of certain components of reading that uh, ordinary readers might take for granted. Um, Alexia, Alexia memoirs um, do something similar in that they make us aware of the reading process as having multiple steps, multiple components, uh, any one of those steps of which can go wrong, uh, you know, at any point. So again, they make us uh, intensely aware of how complex the reading process is. And I mean, make me grateful that I can read it all, um, thinking how much has to happen at, uh, in our brains for, for things to go right. Um, and one of the ways this is borne out is that a lot of alexic readers do find workarounds to, uh, to continue being able to read. So they're no longer able to read visually the way they once did, but they're able to look at letters and sometimes trace letter shapes on their hands. And that act of manually tracing the shapes um, does enable them to read, you know, quite slowly, and laboriously, um, but they can still do it. Um, or they can trace those letters, you know, using their toe scratching on the ground, or even in one case I've come across, um, a patient with Alexia was able to continue reading by tracing letter shapes on the roof of their mouth using their tongue. So, that, you know, that sort of draws attention again to um, uh, the different pathways there are to reading and gets us to think about reading as something much broader, uh, much more variegated than um, just a, a visual activity as it's often thought of. And uh, is it possible for alexic readers to regain their literacy over time or is it gone forever? It depends. In most cases, it seems to me that um, people do not regain their, let's say, their speed, their ease, their fluency with reading. Uh, so some, uh, yeah, there's a huge range. I mean, some people do regain it. Uh, I, I think most people have to work quite hard at rehabilitating the reading. Uh, but even then, it's hard work. So again, it might be sort of going from kind of reading as an automatic, streamlined process to um, having to sort of work letter by letter through words. Uh, so it makes leisure reading very difficult then. They can sort of do functional reading, um, you know, read, let's say, street science and things like that. But uh, it just would take too long to read a novel. It would not be relaxing in a way that a lot of leisure readers associate, you know, reading with with pleasure. So uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's quite rare 
it, it is quite a massive change. And then some people never do regain the ability at all. Um, I mean, fortunately, I think there's much less of a stigma today. Uh, you know, lots of people seem to read less anyway, because um, we're, we're kind of, uh, you know, not just with post-literate readers, but uh, some media theorists like Marshall McLuhan have said we're in a post-literate society where people don't really need to read anymore because we're switching towards a, you know, more multimedia, visual-based uh, society. Um, or there's lots of adaptive technologies like um, text to uh, sound uh, screen readers that can make this information much more accessible. But at the same time, I think you know, reading does have a special place in a lot of people's lives. So a lot of people are highly motivated to try to retain some degree of reading in their lives, you know, partly because of useful skill, but partly as we spoke about a moment ago, it's an important component of their identities. Uh, well, in the second half of your book, uh, you move away from Lexias to talk about uh, some other conditions which um, kind of hinge on the relationship between the body and the brain. Um, and that becomes even more complicated and has to do with uh, things on the page or around you that is not even there when you're doing the act of reading. And one of these is synesthesia, uh, where you see different fonts or writing on a page in different colors. You come to associate certain letters with colors. And one of the most famous synesthetes, as you point out in the book, was Vladimir Nabokov, if I'm not wrong. Uh, so how does uh, the experience of seeing um, these letters in different colors kind of change maybe your comprehension itself of how you perceive the book or what you make of it? So I like to think of uh, synesthesia as a super ability. Uh, you okay. Know, like a lot of the other conditions in my book, which are often thought of as disabilities. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, I, I've got uh, envy of a lot of the synesthetic readers I've spoken to um, because some of them just seem to see this sort of you know, vibrant rainbows in their minds while they're reading, whereas uh, the majority of readers are just sort of seeing black letters against a white page. Um so, and, 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 you know, Navicar is a great example. So anyone who wants to see, uh, you know, a, a really brilliant aestheticized account of reading, I mean, go read um, his autobiography, Speak Memory, and his description of uh, his apprehension of letters. Um, so th that's kind of the question that you raise that animates my entire chapter is, uh, you know, how does the experience of seeing letters and colors influence the reading process? Um, I propose the phrase bibliographic double consciousness um, to think about the differences between you know, this type of neurodivergent reader uh, or someone who sees, in this case, both the original page, um, so the page that most other readers are seeing, but at the same time, they see that page uh, overlaid by an array of colors that other people will not see. And it's important to note that, you know, just like you know, you know, Nabokov described the letter A as having the tint of weather, weathered wood, for example, um, no other synesthetic reader would have the same sort of uh, color scheme that they see. Um, each synesthete will have a slightly different color scheme uh, that they see when they see letters. And each synesthete will usually insist that their color scheme is the correct one. Uh, but it's, uh, that's important to notice because, uh, you know, it's not like there's just one, one color scheme viewed by everyone. So uh, synesthetes are having a completely different experience of the text than other readers. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by double is that there's both, uh, you know, they do see the, the same page as the rest of us and are kind of aware of the way um, neurotypical readers see the page, but they're also having kind of a private 
aesthetic experience at the same time. Um, so going back to that question of how would seeing the alphabet and colors affect the experience of reading, um, you know, sort of the w- w- what I have found by looking at lots of different examples is that you know it, it can enhance the reading experience in some cases, or it can equally disrupt that experience and bring it to a halt altogether in some cases. Um, so for instance, some people, some aesthetes, uh, fixate on individual words that are just particularly striking to them. Uh, so this might be a name, for instance, that that's in a beautiful, ravishing color, and it would be tough for them to continue reading because they just want to look at that, you know, that word or or, or that particular combination of letters. Um, so that's a way in which you know, uh, neurodivergent reading can kind of become distracting and act as a form of reader's block uh, because it, it sort of blocks the flow that most people experience with reading. Um, but to give a very different example, there's also another variation of synesthesia called. Uh, gustatory synesthesia. And that's for readers who, when they're looking at letters, instead of seeing letters and colors, they experience tastes, like literal tastes um, in the back of their throat on their tongue while they're reading. And that's that's great if you see a word that has the taste of chocolate cookies, for instance. I mean, you will have the taste of chocolate cookies in your mouth when you encounter that word, and you'll probably enjoy reading whatever text has those words. Um, But you might also come across a word that uh, uh, is associated with the taste of vomit in your mouth. And then you are not going to read that text, no matter how interesting you might find it on an intellectual level. So that would be an example, again, of, you know, reader's block of disrupting the, the, the experience of reading altogether. And another disruption of the act of reading would be hallucination, uh, of which one of the most famous examples is uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge when he was writing Kubla Khan. But as you point out, we are not really sure if he um, had that sort of hallucinatory experience, if he had that dream or not. But still, hallucination seems to have played, I mean, it seems to be kind of common in the act of reading, in the examples at least that you discuss, uh, where it becomes difficult for readers to kind of separate fact from fiction. Uh, could you elaborate on, on, on the aspect of hallucination while reading a bit? Sure. I mean, Coleridge is a great example of, uh, again, uh, I mean, maybe hallucinations is a super ability because I would love to be able to you know, hallucinate great, great poetry like uh, Kublai Khan. Um, huh. But uh, I'm interested in that kind of overlap between you know, examples like Coleridge, where reading is not seen as pathological, um, even though yeah, we're not entirely sure whether it's a drug reverie, a form of dreaming or what. Um, but uh, in, in any case, that's not seen as pathological or a disability. Um, and reading itself seems to you know, be almost a form of guided hallucination, um, a form of hallucination that we can kind of invite um, when we sit down with a book and start seeing mental imagery in our minds. In most cases, as you mentioned, your readers are going to be able to tell the difference between um, the mental imagery they're seeing that's kind of stimulated by the words on the page versus uh, reality. Uh, but that is not true for all readers. Um, this is a theme in classic fiction, of course. So uh, you, know, you might think of like Don Quixote or Madame Bovary, which yeah. are, are, are often warning readers about the dangers of you know, confusing the world of books for the real world. Um, but the point is, you're supposed to be able to you know, make that distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, it, readers affected by, uh, let's say, hallucinations at another level, um, let's say readers uh, who are affected by psychosis, um, certainly paranoid schizophrenics often mm-hmm. have trouble distinguishing between what they're reading and reality. Um, so 
they might hear voices, for instance, or mm. they might be paranoid that the um, passages on the page are actually coded messages uh, being given to them that they are supposed to act on. Uh, so, so one example that I came across was of a, uh, a, a young woman with schizophrenia who read Virginia Woolf's novel Orlando. Mm. Uh, she thought uh, she, she, I mean, she actually booked a train ticket to go to Orlando, Florida, because she thought that is what the novel was telling her to do. So that, I mean, that seems a type of interpretation that is unlike any interpretation that a neurotypical or an ordinary reader, I think, would get from that novel. Um, mm. And, you know, importantly, she didn't see that as like a, a choice. I, I mean, she thought that was a command. So that's, mm. a, you know, example of the mental imagery, the hallucinations um, overtaking reality in a way that can cause real harm. But, mm. you know, at the same time, I think this raises inter- interesting questions uh, about you know where that line is between paranoid reading of the sort that critics are known for, where you know you might see I don't know a Christian message or a Marxist message, a subversive message mm-hmm. um, in the text that other people might not think is there. You know, wh- where's the line between that and let's say these um, more uh, consequential hallucinations that, um, uh, that, that other people are experiencing. But, but at any rate, it makes me think a lot about your perception itself as feeding into that process of interpretation um, in a way that sort of uh, sets readers apart. So again, not every reader is having identical reading experience and then trying to interpret text in different ways. Some people are arriving at that stage with very different encounters with the text. And are there uh, any specific things or events which seem to trigger these hallucinations or do they seem to come of their own? Um, yeah, it's, I, I mean, so th- there is, let's say, a spectrum, like uh, a lot mm. of the conditions I'm talking about. So, you know, some people might have very mild um, responses to text. And then I think it's, uh, you know, people affected by mental illness, I think it will just gradually onset. Um, mm. You know, curiously, people have very different reactions. I mean, some people read as a way of, so, so some schizophrenics read as a way of suppressing voices. Um, mm. so, so one memoir I read describes reading Dickens novels because that holds the voices at bay while the person is reading. But mm. as soon as the, they stop reading, you know, that, that internal monologue in their head from reading is replaced by outside voices um, that they hear in their head, uh, ordering them to kill themselves or commit other acts. Um, so it is quite uh, you know, a, a, a sort of charged, complicated relationship to books in that case. Um, whereas other people might have you know, brain injuries of some sort that uh, lead them to actually see um, words like hallucinated onto walls around them. They might see letters, sentences, things like that. Uh, and that's not something they have any control over. It is a neurological disorder. Um, is often a sign of other conditions affecting their brain. Uh, so quite serious, even though the act of just sort of I don't, you know, seeing short fragments of text around the world doesn't seem that big a deal. And uh, in, the, in the last chapter, you turn to uh, memory and the role that memory plays in reading by um, talking about the challenges that dementia brings to readers who are long experienced in the act of reading. And you say that dementia memoirs, they show us the phenomena phenomenon of de-reading uh, and so could you tell us a bit about what de-reading is and and what are these challenges that readers with dementia face uh, uh, when they read 
Uh, sure. Thanks for singling out that, that, that phrase. Uh, I mean, you know, most people, when they get older, particularly some of my colleagues I know who've been reading all their lives, they start talking about the pleasure of rereading books in their, uh, their twilight years. Um, people yeah. with dementia, though, of course, uh, are going through a process of what I call de-reading, meaning they are gradually losing the ability to read. Um, so most people know that you know, memory loss associated with dementia makes it difficult to concentrate on books or remember what's in them. Even if people with dementia are able to still read, they are often um, not reading in the same way they used to because it, you know they can't remember entire sequence of events that you need to get closure in a novel, You know, to sort of get to the climax at the end and make retrospective sense of everything that's happened before that. Um, so I don't think that will be surprising to anyone that dementia makes reading difficult. But uh, I am guessing that a lot of those people who do understand the harmful effects of dementia on reading might not mm. be as aware that a lot of people with dementia continue to find reading pleasurable long after those people have stopped being able to read books in the conventional sense of the term. So people keep reading, even though they are reading in a very different way. Um, uh, readers with dementia might enjoy just reading small chunks of text, even though they can't really fit it into a larger plot, or they might enjoy pronouncing words whose meanings they once knew, but can no longer quite remember what those meanings are. They might mm. just like reading captions of pictures in the book or reading or, or looking at pictures themselves because those pictures might evoke memories or reminiscences for them. Um, these readers might trace shapes, you know, so similar to the alexic readers we talked mm. about, but that would kind of be the end of itself, just sort of enjoying the pleasure of interacting with the shapes of letters rather than uh, having an expectation that those letters will mean something. Um, or mm. or um, readers with dementia might start co-reading instead of reading individually. So they'll read along with a caregiver and the caregiver will be able to give prompts or something when they get stuck. Uh, so the question I'm interested in when I'm you know, reading dementia memoirs or talking to people uh, uh, with dementia about their interest in books is, you know, what, why do people keep reading books long after they've stopped being able to understand them um, and aren't really reading for the plot, as literary critics would say? Um, and you know, what I found by looking at all these different strategies uh, of reading associated with dementia is that it, you know, gets, it, gets, it got me, certainly, as someone without dementia, to start thinking about sort of the, the micro pleasures of reading that don't depend on our ability to sort of comprehend the entire text. Um, you know, just the way individual words and phrases might stand out to us or a sentence might, you know, sound pleasurable in our mind's eye, mm -hmm. things like that. Sort of think about um, the small gestures involved with reading without the pressure for them to all add up to some grand total. Mm. Uh, in the book, uh, I think one of the things that struck me um, about your research was how much uh, importance life writing plays here in this book, whether in the form of memoirs or in the form of autobiog autobiography and so on. Uh, and I'm guessing uh, that since this book is one of the few books on uh, neurodivergent ways of reading, you would have faced a lot of challenges, especially given that uh, you'd have to consult medical literature and you'd have to unearth these uh, memoirs, autobiographies. So if you could talk a bit about what it was like writing this book and researching for it. And, sure. Uh, so I didn't uh, realize what when I started this research project. you dealt with those. 
Uh, sure. So I didn't realize when I started writing this book um, just how much life writing there was by uh, people with uh, cognitive differences over the last few decades. Um, so there was a pleasant surprise. And in many ways, I think about my book as a history of neurodivergent reading kind of up to the present day where uh, I think there's been a real explosion um, now that the internet's made it so easy for people to uh, publish blogs or self-publish entire books and make them available to people. I, so I think a lot of life writing is now widely available that's been written by neurodivergent right. people, um, whereas this just was not the case several decades ago where you know sort of there were huge barriers to access to you know, making it possible for neurodivergent readers to tell their stories. Um, so even though there are a lot of these books out there, uh, I had to really spend a lot of time tracking these books down because a lot of them are self-published. Um, so I, 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 you know, not, not easily accessible through libraries and stuff, uh, not widely available. So mm -hmm. that took a lot of time. Um, but you know, the rewards are that you get to sort of step back, see a broad body of work and make comparisons that you would not be able to do otherwise. In addition, it's, it's really allowed me to let um, neurodivergent readers speak for themselves as much as possible mm -hmm. rather than kind of relying on me as their mediator or mm. um, yeah, ambassador in some ways. So I you know, really made a, an effort to do that. Um, and, you know, at the same time, uh, it, it is, uh, the, the, these genres are very interesting because the, the conventions are so different uh, for neurodivergent life writing than for neurotypical life writing. So you know, for instance, uh, you know, one, one book I, I read by a woman with uh, a brain injury who could no longer read, you know, it says right on the first page um, that the author hasn't read her own book and she just wanted to warn the reader of that. That's just mm. something that you would not encounter, I think, in a, a, another genre. And uh, well, I'm hoping this, you know, this book will bring us up to the modern day and now people will start doing uh, work on just the profusion of life writing that's out there and available. Um, so, yeah, I sort of hope this starts a, a much bigger conversation. I'm sure it will. Uh, and uh, one last question about the book that I wanted to ask you was, uh, what do you see as reading today, especially given that now that we understand reading to be such a varied kind of activity, which changes from person to person, there are so many different kinds of readings. Uh, there are neurodivergent ways of reading, and especially now with the proliferation of many other sort of tools that we can that neurodivergent users um, readers can use even neurotypical uh, readers can use uh, whether it be audiobooks or you know videos and uh, speech to text software and so on what is the future of reading that you see and what would you like it to be and if there is a way to overcome readers block or is that a wrong way of thinking about readers block in the first place so I, in, in some ways, I'm very encouraged that attitudes towards uh, neurodiversity have changed so mm. much over the last decade or two. Um, certainly at the university I teach at, we pay so much more attention to uh, dyslexia and other forms of neuro neurodiversity than, than we used to and, and make accommodations or you know, find ways to support students so they can kind of um, d do their best work rather than just you know, penalizing them for uh, 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 aspects mm. of, of, of their dyslexia. So that's very encouraging that I think people, there, there's much 
broader awareness of neurodiversity than there used to be. Mm-hmm. What I hope my book does is um, challenge that widespread assumption that many people still have, that there is a standard way of reading mm-hmm. and that any deviations from that standard way of reading are kind of uh, you know, not real reading to go back to the uh, start of our conversation. Um, and even though most people think of reading as a relatively straightforward activity that mm-hmm. most of us know how to do without thinking too much about, once we learn to do it, um, a closer look at this term just shows how complex it is and how many different activities are covered by that umbrella term. Um, so, you know, that's that's something I want us to think about and be more aware of too. What I'm calling for in this book then is a more expansive, inclusive definition of reading that would accommodate all these diverse ways people interact with text. So going beyond thinking about reading in kind of a, a very narrow way as decoding, comprehension, followed by interpretation. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Some acts of reading might involve just decoding or mm-hmm. some might involve mm-hmm. you know, sensory pleasures, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd like to bring those in um, to the conversation about reading uh, to think about what we can gain by um, expanding the concept to include lots of different ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. So if we think about reading in terms of a spectrum capable mm-hmm. of accommodating the full range of behaviors that I've documented in this book, um, I think we have a lot to gain by doing so. Um, And I think that's not just useful for neurodivergent readers who are often stigmatized or penalized for their way, for for reading in unconventional ways. I think it'll help everyone achieve a richer sense of what's happening in their minds when they're reading. So I just noticed, uh, you know, I started talking to my students more at the beginning of seminars and stuff about, uh, you know, what type of reader they are, what's happening while they read, um, Mm -hmm. how they engage with, books at, at all sorts of levels. And just the range that comes out is astonishing. Um, so again, uh, you know, just they might talk about uh, their mental imagery in ways that would just vary radically from one student to the next. So I think this can really open up uh, opportunities for talking about texts um, that we've been missing out on if we just think about reading as happening in one way. That's a, well, that's a great thought, Matt, uh, that reading is like, we should not think of it in terms of a unified ideal activity but is varying from person to person uh, but we have already taken up a lot of your time uh, but if you, if there's a book that you like to read and would recommend to our listeners that you really cherish and admire or if you could tell us about any research projects that you are currently working on that would be great sure um in, in terms of re- research i you know i still think a lot about this relationship between reading and disability um, I have spent a lot of time uh, in my career working with adaptive technologies designed to help people uh, with physical or cognitive disabilities be able to read by themselves. Um, so, for instance, uh, re- recorded books, audiobooks, that's an example uh, that was designed at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, lately, I've been working on a new technology known as projected books, and that mm. most people have not heard of this. But yeah. projected books were designed after the Second World War, again, for soldiers who come back from the war um, and were hospitalized for injuries that often um, lost use of their limbs and had to stay in hospital beds for you know, months at a time recovering and often had nothing to do, couldn't hold a book for themselves even. Um, so we're often quite bored. So projected books, it was quite a simple invention. It was just a vertical projector that displayed a microfilm image on the ceiling of a printed book. So uh, people lying in bed could see a page of a book on the ceiling and read 
uh, while they were laying in bed and they could operate mm. this um, projector using a, a little handheld remote control. They could uh, press the buttons on it um, using their hands or their toes or their chin, whatever, whatever mm. uh, motion uh, or functionality they still had. Um, so I, I acquired one of these machines and I've been working with charities like uh, Blesma, who's a, a charity for disabled uh, limbless veterans in the UK mm. um, to sort of do, I've been working with them to sort of do show and tells of this d- device just to get people to you know, think about alternative unconventional ways of reading and mm. to show off how easy it is to read a book on the ceiling. Mm. Um, so that's kind of what I'm doing now and will continue doing. Um, and I encourage anyone in your audience who you know wants to talk about their idiosyncratic ways or unconventional ways of reading, I would love to hear them. So um, yeah, please share them with me. Um, in, in terms of a book uh, to, to, to recommend to people, uh, w- one that stands out to me is Temple Grandin's autobiography. Uh, so Temple Grandin is, is one of the, if not the most famous autistic person in the world. Um, she's a scientist who's written quite a few books um, uh, on lots of topics, including books about her own experience as an autistic person. Uh, so the one I have in mind is titled Thinking in Pictures and Other Reports from My Life with Autism. Um, it was published, I think it was 1995. Um, yeah. it, you know, it, it was one of the first books written by an autistic person rather than a book written by someone else about an autistic person. So mm. rather than a book being written by doctors or parents about mm. uh, all the problems of, of being autistic, um, you know, this was an autistic voice um, that really transformed the way lots of people thought about autism. Um, so it's a great example of uh, a well-known motto among those of us who work in the field of disability studies, nothing about us without us. Uh, so it's a, 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 an autistic person sort of giving her insider's perspective of being autistic. Uh, and it really opened up, um, opened the door for so much subsequent life writing by people with hmm. uh, autism in, in, in other uh, conditions to sort of tell their stories and sort of speak back against lots of stereotypes that they put up with for much of their life. Um, why I think it's interesting for people now is because it's a fascinating description, um, a very self-aware description by Temple Grandin of the way her mind works um, and the way her mind works differently from a lot of other people's. So she talks about the visual imagery in her head in, in great detail. Uh, and, and kind of what she was famous for was um, working on cattle farms um, and designing new ways uh, uh, to make those cattle farms safer and more humane for the animals there. And the way she was able to do this was by visualizing what these animals saw when they were kind of walking down ramps and stuff into tubs of water. Um, so rather than just sort of looking at these ramps from the human perspective, she was looking at this from the animal's perspective. It's really extraordinary what a difference it made to take that sort of empathetic approach to the topic. So she really, her insights really transformed um, the conditions of, uh, of, of livestock around, uh, 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 around the country. In terms of reading too, I mean, this is this is what drew my interest to, of course, is she describes her reading processes in equally fascinating ways. Um, and she basically had a photographic memory. Um, and there's a great uh, example that's brought up really well in the film based on Temple Grandin's life, where uh, a young Temple Grandin is in school. Uh, she's in French class and she's asked uh, the whole class is asked by the teacher to read a passage from their textbook. And then they're going to um, get asked questions about it. 
And Temple just glances at the page and then looks away and starts doing something else. And the teacher comes over and says, you know, what, you know, why aren't you reading the passage? Like I asked, she says, I did read it. And the teacher, of course, thinks she's just being, you know, insolent or uh, disruptive. Uh, so it starts quizzing on it. It turns out, you know, she, she had basically just glanced at the page, stored away basically a photographic snapshot of that page in her head so she could sort of access that at any time. So in a way she was reading because she mm -hmm. had you know, interacted with the book and could quote verbatim what was on that page. But in a way she was also kind of deferring the act of reading till she actually needed to do it. So when she was mm -hmm. called on my teacher, then she could read it you know, mm -hmm. from her head. So, you know, a fascinating way in which, you know, again, that seems a strength of neurodiversity in her case. <clears throat> and she was a very high functioning autistic person who, um, you know, is capable of all sorts of scientific discoveries in that. So not necessarily typical, but fascinating to just read a person's account of how they experience the world in their heads in very different ways from lots of other people. So I'd say that's a great place to start if you just want to um, hmm. uh, think about uh, different ways of interacting with the world mentally. Thank you so much for that book recommendation. And thank you so much for the wonderful work that you're doing uh, with charities and projected reading. And we really encourage our audience, our listeners to reach out to you if they have any idiosyncratic ways of reading, unconventional ways of reading. And thank you once again for being here. We had, I had a lovely time talking to you. I really appreciate the chance to talk about, about my book. So th thanks for the questions and discussion.